Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 265 of the Spoiler Alert podcast, brought to you by MovieOutsiders.com. This is Mike. I'm here with Danny. And tonight we're reviewing the ninth feature film from director Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. How about yourself? I took a pause there. I'm, it was a there's a long. It was like so, a Quentin Tarantino sized pause. That was yes, a big one. Yes, I'm doing good. It's good to be talking to you again tonight. He calls this his ninth film, but that's because he considers Kill Bill one and two to be one film. Where I don't do you get, fall on this? I don't consider those to be any films. They sucked ass. Just kidding. What? I liked them kind of, but uh, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I, I thought that they were good movies, but. Um, I'm just going to keep making faces at you until you tell me they're your favorite movies of all time. Like, you keep walking back your, like, over <laughs> statement and just... Not only these, do you just these are better than The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. Yes, they are absolutely better than like, both of those movies. You yes. like them both better than It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, right, right, right. right, right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but he has said that... They were two theory. feature films, and they were released a year or two apart from one another, right? Yeah, yeah no, the, these are two movies. These are two okay. movies, yeah, yeah. Well, he has said that he plans on retiring after ten movies because he has arbitrarily just decided that's a good amount of movies to have in your filmography as a director. Sure. Um, but he's already there, technically. Yeah. So I don't, uh, I don't know who's going to have this conversation with Quentin uh, just to let fill him in. But that says this one was it. Now you're this done. was it. Now you're yeah, done. Right. You're or done. <laughs> you just got to abandon this bizarre and like kind of highfalutin mentality that you're going to just make us all ten movies. Yeah. Yeah. Wanting more after you retire after 10. Movies. Well, isn't that funny to think of once upon a time in Hollywood when Frank Capra would make 10 movies a year and like, <laughs> right. like, like and just just keep cranking them out and be nominated for best director for three movies every year and like right. that was kind of a different time in Hollywood yes. but that but that was Frank Capra's job like he got up and went to well, the right. office his office yes. was just the movie studio yeah not like well I'm gonna spend you know Quentin Tarantino supposedly spent five years writing the script for once upon a time in Hollywood Wow and I, well, congrats just... on that one when I would like it if you could explain to me later what it meant it was really good. Oh, okay. We're getting oh, into it. All right. All right. We're getting into it. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. You well, want to well, hit us up with the plot recap so that we can dig into it? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to keep this exceptionally tight. The movie is a little over two hours and 40 minutes long. Um, so I will pair it back. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood stars Leonardo DiCaprio in his first role since winning Best Actor for The Revenant. Was that like two years ago? Four years ago. Holy where he plays Rick Dalton, a former Western TV star, and Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, Rick's stuntman, gopher, and best bud. And uh, the movie takes place largely over two days in sort of the waning months of the golden age of Hollywood in 1969, in which Rick, a former Western TV star, has been kind of demoted to playing villain guest stars on a, on a parade of kind of subpar action TV shows. And each season he silently prays to the gods of pilot season that he'll get back on track. 
Uh, but it's getting to the point where the writing's on the wall for Rick, that his career is largely in decline. And right. in fact, an agent played by Al Pacino gives him the lifeline of going to Italy to star in some Italian westerns. Well, to Rick, this is the kiss of death. Uh, and he's sort of already mourning his lost career where Cliff is happy to just sort of hang out, veg out, and pal around. The movie is almost all vibe, and if you grew up in L.A. in the late 60s, this is going to be your jam. You're going to love this, yes. You're going to just love it. Quentin Tarantino's love of music, of Hollywood, of old cars uh, are fully on display here, and uh, the movie ends with a uh, concluding scene in which the (laughs) members of the Manson family stage a bloody and horrific attack, although the outcome is not what you remember uh, from history. From the headlines, yeah, right. And that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. (laughs) And you felt, how about it, Mike? I thought this movie was so boring. I could not wrap my brain around it and i think and and it was so disappointing to me because i feel like you could have just like done archival footage of movie lots and the hollywood hills in the late 1960s and i'd have thought that it was fascinating and then you stack it with actors like brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio and margot robbie and i think you can't fail at this and it was two and a half hours of utter boredom, followed by 15 minutes of Quentin Tarantino fun to me. How about you? Wow. Um, we are in almost total agreement. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, so I have a lot of respect for Tarantino as a filmmaker and even his movies that I'm not a huge fan of. I guess I've always sort of felt that love him or hate him. He's at least never boring. Right, yes. And I agreed that the first two hours of this movie was watching paint dry. And while the acting was very good, I didn't think that much of anybody was given anything to do. There's no memorable dialogue, and there's really almost no plot to speak of. None at all. For the first two hours. It's just vibe. I mean... And it's a good vibe. It's a good vibe. It's cool. Like, he he absolutely has the whole kitsch of 1969 Los Angeles perfect. Yes. But, like... But then he he, doesn't do anything with it. He won a screenplay Oscar for Django Unchained, right? Like, didn't he win it for that? And, um... Like, I I swear he... I swear he won won it for Django Unchained, and I thought... Yeah, I think so. That seems... Like that was a that was a rough movie. It was very brutal. It was yep. r- kind of weird and horrific. And so going into this, I'm thinking you are picking the era of United States history that I'm most excited about, the late 1960s, and and you're gonna insert it in Hollywood, which is my jam. Right. And I was like, really? This is as exciting as it was in Hollywood in the late 1960s. This was. This was dry. It was this really was dry. dry. This was dry. And this was, I mean, when you hear Quentin talk about this movie, he calls it his magnum opus. Oh, God. He talks about this no. movie got a seven minute standing ovation when it played a can. Seven minutes of just like <laughs> this, just this guy did people... pulp fiction. Like, this yeah. isn't right. That's no good. So, 
No, I, I rewatched Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown after seeing this and thought, God, those are great movies. Kill Bill 1 and 2, I think, are great movies, although very different films. I mean, even The Hateful Eight, which we saw a few years ago for the podcast, I wasn't a huge fan of that movie, but it was gorgeous. And there is some terrific dialogue and just people chewing the scenery left and right. And it's electric. Like I said, you know, I don't right. know. I didn't always like what was happening right. on screen, but at least I was interested. This one was tough. Yeah. Yeah. This. I mean, right down to some scenes where, you know, Cliff Booth, uh, Brad Pitt's driving around and he picks up a hitchhiker and takes her back to the Spawn Cowboy Ranch, the TV ranch where the Manson family is living. Right. And we get this sequence where he's looking to see if he can touch base with George Spawn, the owner of the ranch. And it is very much set up. He knew him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's very much set up to be like a suspenseful scene where we're wondering if he's going to walk in and find a dead body. Or get his head blown off or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it is supposed to be so tense. And I'm just – I was just bored and I kept writing on my notes like, this is not scary. This is not tense. This is nothing like Inglorious Bastards. No, no. You know, that that bar scene where like that one, you're sweating through your pants into your seat – this one's like yes. I think I'm gonna go get a ba- I think I'm gonna go to the bathroom real quick because I know nothing's right. gonna happen. <laughs> because I mean, at that point, you're already an hour and fifteen minutes into the movie and nothing has happened yet. Like, yeah. this it's so disappointing because this is a really exciting point in history for yeah. Hollywood, right? Like, I wouldn't call it the golden age of Hollywood. I would think that like. Five like five years later, that's when they really crested well, that's, the that's wave. That's our golden. That's age. our golden age. Oh, yes. really, right, the seventies yeah, yeah. is where really they they hit their stride. But uh, this, yeah, this was really disappointing. And so I remember seeing the preview too and thinking, "This is insane!" Like Quentin Tarantino made a three hour long movie about the Manson family and right. what their impact was on Hollywood and. They are kind of like casually inserted halfway through and barely become a factor until the last 15 minutes. It's very, very odd. Charlie Manson has a three-minute cameo in the movie. I mean, it's not him, but he has he has a three-minute yeah, sequence early that, in the movie. But yeah, if that. It's, it's really small. It's just it's, so odd. Like, this, yeah. this was absolutely 100% not what I expected going into this film based on what I saw in the trailer. I completely concur. And I was equally, this is now my least favorite Tarantino film. Absolutely. My least favorite Tarantino film. Yes. But, but one of the best that in that he had some of the best, uh, ingredients, right? He had great actors, great, yes. Great fodder for setting. I mean, I feel like everything he's ever wanted in a movie was in this movie and he sort of blew it, in my opinion. I, he d- and I, I just, I just don't see what people are so excited about. It's really pretty disappointing. He really did blow it, and and it's a disappointing because I feel like he captured the vibe of the late 1960s in Hollywood absolutely perfectly. I thought the cinematography here was like, I mean, he might as well have shot it in 1969. It looked so perfect. The cars, the kind of barely color sepia tones like everything looked really good in the movie i thought that his soundtrack was again 
pitch perfect. Like this guy always gets the soundtrack right. He gets the and, soundtrack right. And, yeah. and if you're going to do a 1969 movie, the obvious would be like, well, you do Credence and you do The Doors and you do The Beatles right. and you do The Stones. He did none of those. None it's of like that. Yeah. it's it's like Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels and like all these kind of the, these kitschy dorky bands from the late 1960s Paul Revere and the Raiders like that was all so perfect like Neil Diamond's Brother Loves Traveling Salvation show plays into a scene really prominently and I thought what a freaking perfect song like he always gets it right when he does this and this is not the music that you would pick for a late 1960s movie it's the mu- it's the music he would pick for a late 1960s movie right. and it's all relevant and it's all right and it's great and so i loved the soundtrack of it i loved the cinematography of it i loved all of the production value i loved brad pitt in it there's so much to like about it but i did not like this movie no and and maybe more so in my opinion than any other quentin tarantino movie there's these like asides, it's not just cross cut, like cross story editing, like he did with Pulp Fiction, uh, especially in '94, like to to such wildly fresh, um, it's such a, a different take than we'd ever seen. This is just like someone will say something, and then we get like a, an eight minute scene of Bruce Lee fighting with Brad Pitt and right. and the whole point of that scene is to explain why uh Kurt Russell's wife's character doesn't like Brad Pitt but even in that scene we get a different aside <laughs> so it's like we kind of go down two rabbit holes to explain something that was pointless to explain it was just indulgent right it was just yes. to kind of shoehorn in a scene that's featured prominently in trailers and posters and things and it's in an and two hour and 45 minute long movie like how why was that necessary that's yeah. that's frustrating i just this to me felt like maybe this should have been a television show maybe this should have been an eight episode netflix original from tarantino where he really just gets to do the vibe and you know, you can sort of forgive a slow burn of a story that unfolds sure. over hours and hours. But this one, there really was very little plot. I mean, things happen and eventually some of those things connect into what could be called a plot structure. But it's so loosey-goosey yeah, and so forgettable and not at all interesting. And then even the Manson family, whom... Tarantino sort of subverts and certainly subverts their intended targets and their right. uh, their impact. He makes them into such cartoonish buffoons that it saps any scariness out of them yeah. and makes them like a like a comedy. And I just think, wow, that's kind of a shocking take for for Tarantino to have on the Manson family who sort of killed Hollywood's innocence or ended an era or whatever you want to call it. It's just sort of shocking that he would take that route. And I, I was sort of perplexed by that. So I was kind of fascinated by the whole Manson tragedy when I was younger. Like, I think when I was in fifth grade, I read the book Helter Skelter that was written by the, the LA prosecuting attorney of Charles Manson. 
and it like it was just sort of a terrifying creepy but sort of exciting because it uh it tied into the beatles like manson had a strong tie to the beatles white album of that sure. year and so like i could i couldn't put the thing down and i think that this almost does it kind of make a joke of it like i mean it, it's almost like like making a parody of kennedy's assassination or something like that like this was an important era uh a famous actress was killed. Her famous director husband uh, went through a lot after that. And I, I feel like that this was sort of almost making a joke of it. Like, what's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with that? What's up with Margot Robbie? Just walking around Hollywood, smiling, pregnant all the time. That's all she does throughout this movie. And yeah, she's not not given much to do at all. No, no. What what's up with that? That's it's really a weird take. I mean, she's a top billed actress, and that's kind of disturbing. Also, Elle Fanning is a top billed actress, and she's in this three hour long movie for two to three minutes at and best. And she's unrecognizable. Yeah, and she and she has, Lena Dunham. She, she looks gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah just they absolutely all look gross. Skymy. Yeah, but you know, Tarantino has subverted history in the past, right? In Inglorious Bastards, you know, it ends with a bloodbath where Hitler is murdered by the Allies, but but Hitler at least died in World War II, right? Like, so okay, the the circumstances of his death were changed for the film, but we kind of got to the same place. Right. So it's almost like if you skipped that couple those couple of days in history class and just found out, okay, Hitler died, got it. Like <laughs> you could kind of believe that this is what happened, but Tarantino takes this wild left turn in the yeah. the, the yeah. last half hour of this film, and I I kind of get why a little bit, but then I don't know why you'd include it at all and and why you'd make light of it. I mean, I agree, you're right. you're analogy of sort of making light of the Kennedy assassination, I feel like is appropriate in that. Is this something we want to make fun of? And is it, I don't know. I felt like it really trivialized the whole situation. Yeah. Right. And, and it wasn't, and it wasn't just, it's not an abstract thing either. Like, I mean, these were, these were people whose names we know who were murdered in the most horrific way possible that, made national headlines for years and this man ended up on death row and then they reversed the death penalty in California. So he's, you know, he recently died in prison. But like, I just think that whole thing is, I mean, you've got somebody playing that actress and her husband is still alive. Like, I mean, what what do you think of Roman Polanski? I'm not going to get on that, but like, I'm guessing he loved her, and and now we're just kind of making a joke out of the whole situation of her death, which I think is really kind of gross. This The whole thing was weird to me. That whole thing was weird. And similarly, while you got some of these asides and tangents throughout the film, you also get a couple of weird sequences where, uh, let's say, one actor is talking to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and they ask, is it true you almost got the the part in The Great Escape that Steve McQueen played? And he sort of tells the story of, no, I really wasn't that close to it. 
But then for for some reason, we get a scene of Leonardo DiCaprio digitally inserted into The Great Escape. Right. And it's like a minute and a half of him sort of playing the Steve McQueen role, like for no reason. Right, right. Like they took time and effort and spent money and did makeup and everything to do this strange parody of putting Leo in a movie that his character even says he really never got that close to. But we get like this alternate reality where he did get it. And I just didn't know what the point was of some of those. I'm sure some of our much smarter and more attuned subscribers will, will be able to share with us. I just, because it, it, it felt because like people are loving this movie head. too. People are loving it. They're loving it. Seven minutes standing ovation. I can, <laughs> It's the highest opening weekends of Tarantino's career. It's some of his best reviews. And I just think, put it on the bottom. I'd rather sit through Death Proof again. Yeah. And that's saying something, because that I, movie has nothing to say. I'm, I'm totally with you. When I saw the preview, I was so excited about this movie. I think that the title was exciting. I think the fact that it's Quentin Tarantino was exciting. I think the casting was exciting. And then I thought the subject matter was exciting. It's something that I've followed quite a bit i remember reading hundreds of articles about charlie manson and his infatuation with the beatles and why that made him do this and their distancing from him and i could not wait to see this recreation and then it's a false recreation of the story it's it's just a yeah. a weird almost dishonoring of victims that had died in this situation, which was really upsetting and disappointing. You know, you said kind of say what you will about Roman Polanski. I feel like we know how Tarantino feels about him because what's up with how Polanski is dressed in this movie. In one (laughs) sequence, he, his character, the guy who plays Polanski comes out just wearing an Austin Powers costume. (laughs) Like straight up, straight up, it's Austin Powers. (laughs) And then in another scene, he's wearing what is clearly a young woman's robe. (laughs) Like something for like a 17 year old girl in the 60s. And this is what Polanski's wearing around. I thought, wow, you are really painting a picture of Roman Polanski uh, here. That is not very flattering. I I don't know Quentin Tarantino personally, if you can believe that. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what. I don't know what his deal is, but I've got to think that, like, dude, you, you've got to stop throwing shade at other people because you're freaking weird, too. Like, you, like that guy is off, right? Like, he's he's the guy that, like, when he, it's the first Oscar awarded that night and he shows up on stage sweating and drunk and without a tie on and, yeah. like... Like, like vomit dribbling out of his mouth. Like, dude, like, you're off too, right? Like, clearly you've also got your issues. Right, right. Uh, What's up with the fact that there's, in the climactic scene, one of the key props is the fact that somebody's getting destroyed by a flamethrower that, like, you got to keep as, like, a... Right. Uh, like a set piece from a movie he was in. Like, no, that would never happen. Like, first of all... The flamethrower doesn't exist. Like it's a, it's just a fake gun. But right, like you don't get to have a flamethrower in the movie. You don't actually shoot flames out of a gun. 
Oh, you're saying the prop would not work. Correct. Yes, right. Uh, like, yes, ab- absolutely. Because I'm like, yes. flamethrowers exist. No, that's a, flamethrowers exist. Yeah. You don't get to own one. Like, it was it was See, a fake gun. Yeah. That was actually a moment that I liked because I thought, okay, that's at least, again, whether it's real or not real, you can kind of take it or leave it, but it's at least interesting. And I thought kind of gonzo funny. It was hilarious. But at that point, it just... It just was so out of left field, given the, the the painstaking desire for like reality for the first two hours of the movie. I completely agree. It was it was such a left turn. It was so much fun. I loved that moment of the movie. Like, oh, now we're getting to Quentin Tarantino violence. Like up until now, it's been a weird David Mamet esoteric exercise on something that I don't understand what's happening anymore. Right? Yes. What's up with casting Timothy Oliphant as the new it boy leading man who's sort of taking over the the pilot of the new TV series, whereas you're casting Leonardo DiCaprio as the washed up has been? (laughs) Isn't Timothy Oliphant like 10 years older than Leo? (laughs) Totally. Yes. Yes. Like he's like 55 and we're like, check out this new ingenue, this (laughs) this new hunk of cheese and. I can't He's got, believe like, gray hair all over the place. I can't believe it's been four years since uh, Revenant. That's amazing. Believe and it. And I right. thought Leo was great in this too. Quite honestly, it, but yeah, I, I mean, it's just, just they had much nothing to do. to do. Like, why are why are you guys in this movie? Yeah. What's up with painstakingly taking two hours to go through two random days, and then you get a title card and a six month jump cut? <laughs> And then suddenly we just fill in some exposition with a Kurt Russell voiceover. Yeah. Ridiculous. And Ridiculous. why have Kurt Russell and right. his character doing the voiceover? Right. right. What was up with that? What's up with the fact that Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth went to, to Rome with uh, Leo's character for six months and boarded his dog for six months? Like, just bring the dog thought, with you. I wrote, like, did your dog die? Like, oh, no, he just had him in, like, the kennel for six months. And he picks him up, and the first thing he does is leave the dog at home alone so he can go out to dinner. <laughs> this guy's the worst dog owner in the history of cinematic, uh, you know, the worst one in the history. But we need the dog because the dog's going to save the day at the end. Correct. So, like, he's right, got to pick right. the dog. He needs he's to stick like around. A, yes. This yeah. terrible yeah. dog-hating jackass. But we need it for the plot. <laughs> Buddy, you ready for five questions? Yes. All right. We've got five listener submitted questions. Thank you, listeners. These are questions for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Are you sure you're ready? Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, question number one. Do you think Tarantino will end his directing career with an R-rated Star Trek? He certainly talked a lot about it, and I don't think that Paramount would let him do that. I don't that think so they weird. want an R-rated Star Trek. No. All right. That would really ruin Gene Roddenberry's whole idea. All right. Question number two. The film was originally scheduled for release August 9th, which is the 50th anniversary of Sharon Tate's murder, but the studio changed it after backlash about that. Do you think that was necessary, given how Tate is portrayed in this picture? I don't think the date itself 
was meaningful enough. Well, let me take that back. I think it's a little morbid and it seems like in poor taste to time the release from a marketing standpoint to the anniversary of the murders. Yeah. Especially, again, when the murders are kind of subverted and almost... I mean, I guess Sharon made fun survives, of, in so yeah. in a way, it's nice, but her killers are made to seem like wacky morons who really get their comeuppance. Right. So I, right. I just don't think it... I don't think anyone made either of those decisions, either to put it on that date or to move it, out of respect for Sharon Tate. Okay. All right. Uh, question number three. How badly must an actor feel to star in only one Tarantino movie? <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you probably have to screw up pretty badly. This is Margot Robbie's first picture with him. She should feel terrible. Murdered. Okay, do you get even half of these cultural references? Uh, no. Well, because, you know, with Tarantino, some of them are straight up 60s Hollywood references. And some of them, you know, like feature fake movie posters for movies that never existed. And okay. so it's, I think it's a little bit of him playing fast and loose with uh, kind of seeing what sure. he can get away with. So, no. okay. All right. Plus I'm All very right. young relative to the people who Right. We are we're we're really point. young people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, f- final question. After finally picking up the underage hitchhiker, Cliff shows enormous restraint when he declines her amorous advances. Had you been in the same situation, in great shape and single in the late 60s, would you have been able to turn down Lena Dunham's precious Dude, that's a terrible question. I have no idea. I don't know anything about Lena Dunham, and nor do I really wish to. She is like, she's like one of those celebrities that I just missed. And I don't feel the need to go back and try and catch up. And revisit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just fine <laughs> living my whole life without really ever, ever knowing about her. All Lena right. Dunham. Right. Yeah. And that's five questions. Hey. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, listeners. All right. I don't I have nothing else to add to this commentary. This movie I think was... anybody interested in seeing this movie should instead watch a different Tarantino movie. All right. There you go. Perfect. Let's let's go with that. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. Please visit us online at movieoutsiders.com, where you can see what films we'll be discussing next, comment on our recent episodes, suggest movies to review or topics to discuss, or submit questions for the five questions segment of the podcast. Stop by and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash movieoutsiders, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at movieoutsiders. If you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast subscription service you use. We'll be back again next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the movies.